Welcome to the September episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Seth O'Brien, Vice President of Prosthetics at Wheeler OMP and Chair of the Scientific Societies Committee for the Academy. Today, I'm excited to welcome Seamus Kennedy, Certified Pedorthist, Associate Fellow of the Academy, and active member of the Academy's Gates Society. Seamus studied mechanical engineering at University College Dublin and worked in the industry for seven years. Seamus and his brother, Kahal, brought Hersco Ortho Labs in 1995 and developed it into full central fab, making custom orthotics, AFOs, Ritchie braces, ankle gauntlets, and molded shoes. And now they're into 3D printing too. Seamus, great to have you on. I, I hope that, did I get your brother's name right? That was actually one of my main concerns. Yeah, it's a hurdle for everyone. Uh, so his name is Hal, which is spelled C-A-T-H-A-L, but the T is silent and that trips everyone up. So that, Thank you. Thank you. The, yeah, the sweat beads were dripping going through that, but uh, it's great to have you on. I always love talking to you, Seamus, and, and thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Uh, it's great to be here, Seth, and thanks for inviting me on. My pleasure. Let's start a little bit, just a slight background, of course, but what sparked your interest in becoming a, a pet orthist? Well, it's a good question. And to be honest with you, we kind of back into a profession that we have found ourselves in. Our father owned uh, his own business and he always said to us, boys, own your own business, be your own boss. So to make a very long, exciting, painful story short, we ended up buying First Go Arch Products which is what it was called back in the 1990s, which was a business that had been around since the 1930s in New York City, selling leather arts and steel equipment plates and other torture devices. So we bought it over. The business was quite small at the time and probably going to go out of business. And we just liked the idea of uh, orthotics. We liked the business. It had been around for a long time. So we felt if we just got in there, worked hard and were nice to people, uh, good things would happen or we'd stay in business long enough to figure out what we needed to do. So here we are 28 years later, we're still in the business, we're still learning, and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, and it's great working with my brother, quite honestly. Oh, I bet, I bet. I mean, it's incredible to hear, too, just more or less from a business opportunity sparked this whole transition, and, and I mean, in my opinion, you know, really you becoming a subject matter expert in the field, that's, that's quite the, uh, the opportunistic approach right there. Yeah, well, the funny thing was we bought the business and we immediately split our resources. So my brother became the operations side of the business, ran the business, did the payroll and so on. And I was the outside guy, if you will, sales and marketing. So I literally walked to every podiatrist in Manhattan for the first year. Uh, I knew them all by first name, as the saying goes, and they knew me. They weren't buying our products only because we were making these beautiful handcrafted leather Schaefer plates. Uh, and Levy molds. They loved looking at them, but they were really uh, museum pieces. So we had to learn the profession quickly. And that's how I started to read and get into the newer theories, you know, root theory of foot function and so on. And that began the journey of really immersing myself in orthopedics. That's when I became a certified pedorthist because when we first bought the business, we had no background whatsoever. So there were two things that I needed to do. I needed to learn a little Spanish because both of our employees, we had two at the time, were Puerto Ricans. They were very skillful, dedicated uh, employees, uh, but they didn't speak much English. So I had to learn broken Spanish and orthopedics at the same time. 
I, I have to, I absolutely want to hear the broken Spanish with the Irish accent. That is like the a match made in heaven in my mind. I can only imagine how, how great that sounds. Uh, yeah. So it, it goes like this. Yo aprendo español con mis empleados. <laughs> I love it. You know, I always have a, a bit of imposter syndrome. You know, I, I, being an O'Brien, I'm always the uh, Irish guy until I get a real Irish guy around me. And then I wonder, where did I go so wrong? That's, I, the Shiva sounds so much cooler than I do. And, ah, the, you know, the ancestors from Dublin, but apparently it's just, it's just not enough anymore. Look, we're, we're all brothers in the end. So you'd be welcome. You'd be welcome in Dublin. I, the one thing I'll say about learning Spanish and living in New York City, it's become very helpful anyway. My Spanish is not great, but I can make myself understood. People love when you make the effort. And even when you're in a patient care setting and you meet patients, they, they really appreciate even a few words. Um, so I found it very helpful breaking the ice with new people. Sure. As someone who speaks poor, broken Spanish, but in high school, I took uh, quite a bit and was more or less fluent and then just didn't use it for so long. And now wishing that I had kept that up because it is absolutely, I would agree with that. The effort goes a long way, even when it's kind of a mix of Spanish and English in my case. Yeah, exactly. I, I had learned French in high school, so um, I had that as a basis. The problem was when I first started speaking Spanish, my only reference was the Godfather. So I, I, sang with, uh, I had an Italian accent with an Irish on, but then trying to speak Spanish. It was a disaster. But Oh, man. I, may, maybe Hollywood was the way, you know, you may have made the wrong business opportunity, you know, or the, the wrong business choice. I'm not entirely sure anymore. I'm open to offers. So if there's anyone out there who wants to uh, contract me, I could play um, a pedortist in a, in a murder mystery. There's a script there. There you go. I, that, that may be closer to reality than you realize. Somebody out there is going to have to give you a call. What about what does Seamus do for fun? What, what do you outside of work? What do you like to do? Well, a few things. I have two, uh, two wonderful children. Uh, they are 20 and 18 now. So in fact, at the end of this month, our son is going off to university and he's chosen to go to St. Andrew's University in Scotland. So we are going to be empty nesters very soon. And it's a little bit unnerving. Strange to believe how time has passed there. I was his soccer coach. Apparently he had the worst soccer coach in the world, but um, I was the only one who stepped up. So uh, I, I coached him for six years. Uh, along with his teammates. And th that was a lot of fun. So I guess there are new opportunities for spare time coming up. So we'll see how it goes. You bet. Any other things around, you know, around the city? To, I, I'm intrigued by the New York City life. I, it, what other things might be more of an East Coast flavor for you? Well, definitely. I like independent cinema. And there's a lot of independent cinema houses here. So I, I like going to see independent cinema when I can, when I have time. I will have more time. I love the museums. We're, we're in one of the great cities in the world museums, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Whitney Museum, the Frick, there are so many. So I actually do go, you know, and I'll, I'll, we're members of the Met. I'll go on a regular basis, you know, every couple of months. I guess the other uh, thing that's important to me is I have a side interest in Eastern meditation. So I, I study Eastern meditation and I meditate. And I find that a great oil to what we do every day. You know, we're in a very exciting city. We work very hard, as we all do. And just Having the ability to step out of that, uh, you know, twice a day, I've found to be a great balance to my life. You know, there are plenty of philosophical pursuits you can take in large cities anywhere. And that's another avenue of kind of learning, but in a different way. So that all makes for a very full life and takes up a lot of my time. 
I'm grateful to live in New York City. I, I'm, I'm a city boy. Bottom line, I was born in Dublin and I've lived in cities my whole life. Well, we'll be sure to look for you now even more dressed up this time at the Met Gala instead of just, you know, on behind the ropes watching. That's right. Well, like my Hollywood career, I, I, I'm uh, still waiting for the invitation, but I'll go if I'm asked. How about September being Vascular Health Awareness Month, you know, kind of a, a, the perfect tie to sort of what your specialty is. I wonder if maybe we can uh, discuss a little bit about the importance of vascular health and the impact that poor vascular health can really have on gait and on the patient populations that we see. Yeah, uh, vascular health is a very important topic. I guess, you know, vascular health falls into a couple of different buckets, if you will. There is peripheral arterial disease. There's chronic venous insufficiency and lymphedema. I, you know, it's a very complex subject. You know, probably as orthodists and pedorthists, we kind of back into the issues around vascular health. We don't see patients necessarily because they have vascular health issues. Patients come to us referred by doctors with prescriptions. And it's quite often the case that they have a have a foot problem or they have an open ulcer or any of these things that we see on a daily basis. But behind that, there's a vascular health issue. Sure. So, you know, we certainly see a lot of patients with chronic venous insufficiency, edema's feet, puffy, swollen skin. And we have to be careful in how we address those patients and treat them so that we don't exacerbate any issues or cause any further issues. So how... As clinicians, do we kind of toe the line, you know, clinicians within OMP, do we toe the line of, of maybe counseling our patients on the concerns of their vascular health, which, you know, as you mentioned, are so closely related to the actual symptoms or the actual conditions that we're treating them for, or the devices we're making to help with those almost symptoms, kind of, and yet sort of toe that line between not actually treating or addressing the direct cause? How can we kind of approach that mentally with, as, as a counsel? Yeah, yeah, we always have to be careful as, you know, practitioners in OMP that, you know, we don't diagnose. We follow the prescriptions from the physicians, the referral sources. And obviously, the care of the patient is foremost for everyone in the treatment chain. I guess what we do see are, well, for example, the risk factors for peripheral arterial disease are, you know, age, meaning it, it increases with age. So with each decade of aging, there's a higher likelihood of PAD getting worse. The more common risk factors that we see all the time are diabetes and obesity, patients with hypertension, high blood pressure, and patients with cholesterol issues, which we would not necessarily know about unless we did a full oral history with them. And obviously, smoking is a no-no. And that's also a significant risk factor and family history. But I think to answer your question, it's our goal to have patients who are active, healthy, and ambulating. People who are up and moving and walking, participating in their communities, that are engaging in life. That's at the highest level. Then they have a high quality of life, and that's what we want for everyone. What we can do is do some profiling of maybe the family history of these conditions. But really, I think we can also represent some of the ideas that we suggest to our patients. Are we ourselves managing our weight? Do we have healthy exercise habits? Do we watch our own diets? Not that we have to be angels, but we certainly want to represent or model, as they say, the behaviors we want patients to emulate. So I, I think that's that's one thing we can do. And you asked me earlier, what do I like to do? I, I forgot that. Another thing that I do like to do is stay fit. I'm a, a runner and a swimmer. Now, 
again, the Irish Olympic Committee has not contacted me recently. <laughs> um, but I, I could knock out a 10K, you know, tomorrow. So, you know, I, I stay active. And I find the benefit of that accrues to me, you know, as much as you say, well, you're, you're modeling uh, good behaviors for patients. I love running and I love the feeling that I get when I finish running. And I've been a swimmer my whole life. So things like that, which are a little more subtle than the direct care we provide, are very important. It's a great point. And, and that's one that would usually doesn't get talked about when we talk about being a, an advocate for or part of that healthcare team, right, is, is taking care of our own health. Maybe the one aspect that typically is creeping into that picture is the, is the mental health side of it for ourselves. But that physical activity and that physical health is a great point that we don't typically address. Yeah. And it all goes together, you know, as far as I can see, meaning your, your physical health affects your mental health. If your mental health is good. And I mean, even for the practitioners who might be listening, look, in the OMP field, we work very hard. It's become a, quite a corporate field and, and it has to be by necessity to remain efficient. But you can see a lot of patients every day. Dorchester can see a dozen, 15, 20 patients a day, depending on the practices they're in. At the end of the day, you're wiped out. You've given it all, and that's great. But you've given it emotionally and mentally. Physically, you still have some energy left. You know, um, if you can get out and exercise yourself or walk or run a bit, you don't have to do a marathon. All of those things help you maintain a good state of mind and be the best practitioner you can be tomorrow when you have to go back to the clinic and do it all. Maybe for those for those who handle this population, but, or maybe are new to it, aren't as familiar or just aren't as comfortable with sort of this balance of, you know, where we fit within that healthcare team. What do you think maybe are some of the the best practices just in terms of giving them a bit of guidance? What are maybe signs that we need to refer to another specialist or is it really just focusing on that education piece of it and then making that referral? And so that we're highlighting the importance of it, but then maybe pointing them in the right direction to get the appropriate care for that? Yeah, right. It, it's a good question. Well, I think for all of us in the allied healthcare field and everyone in medicine, the patient is primary. So protect the patient is the golden rule. It's the first rule. So if you're facing a patient or a patient's issues that you feel are beyond your scope, even if you've read about it in school or you've seen it in a video if you feel that you're not quite up to it, there's nothing better than to say to a patient, you know, for this particular issue, you should probably see either my colleague who's in the same office or refer back to the physician because we really want to have the best for our patients. One thing that I've, I've noticed over the years is that some practitioners, and they might be in OMP or they might be podiatrists, they develop a specialty, a real expertise in particular areas. So it could be diabetic foot care and wound healing, and they might run a fantastic wound healing clinic, but it could be in pediatrics. It could be in treatment of sports injuries and athletics. Sometimes a very experienced clinician, let's say he is in wound care and has developed a tremendous practice and reputation there, he might come across a patient who has a sports injury. Is the practitioner capable of handling it or treating it? Absolutely. But maybe they don't want to. It'll slow them down in relation to what they do better every day. They can take care of more patients and do a better job focusing on their specialty or staying in their lane is a phrase that's used. doesn't mean you're not capable of treating all of those patients, but at certain times, it may not be uh, the most efficient way for you to practice. Um, it might be better for the patient 
to go to someone who sees that particular thing on a daily basis. Sure. You know, that's something that I'm learning more as as I get older, right? As a young clinician, it was, you're going to conquer the world and see yeah. expert in every single piece of the puzzle. And yeah. yeah, not until more recently am I am I really starting to have the appreciation for, oh, there's some some real value in maybe narrowing your your scope a bit or, or just becoming the best, you know, the best practitioner in X that you can and and maybe making that referral to a colleague or or just trying not to hoard all of those patient opportunities, right? And, and collaborating a little more, it has a lot of value. And, and I'm realizing that more as I get older. Yeah, and it, it runs both ways. Because if you become known as an expert in a particular area, you know, other colleagues, other physicians are inclined to refer those patients to you. You know, go see Seth. He's very good at this particular thing. An analogy I've used is like a carpenter. You, know, you can be a carpenter. or something you're good with the saw, you're good hammers, uh, nails, and all that. But a framing carpenter will put up the frame of a house, and, and then a finished carpenter will go inside and put in skirting boards and molding and that. Those are two very different skills. And I know this because I worked as a carpenter when I was a student up in Cape Cod decades ago. Now now I'm wondering at what point I'm supposed to stop believing you in all of these... Uh, how... 200, 300 years old? I mean, how, how old are you with all of these different lifetimes of experience? Well, it's a good question. It, 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 see, it's not really the fact that was I a carpenter or not. I, I was. It was how long did I hold the job down? So. <laughs> <laughs> There's the, uh, you know, Seamus is going to be teaching uh, young practitioners in, in the year 3032 and still look exactly the same as he does now. What about just sort of some new trends? You know, we talk a lot about kind of the, the specialty of different areas of OMP, but in your world as a pet orthist and especially running the fabrication side of it so heavily or being involved in that with such a keen eye, what do you, what do you think are some of the new trends in patient care? What are things that you're noticing or, or maybe some things that you're excited about these days? Yeah, well, there's a few things that have been uh, around for a long time, but, you know, they're not widespread yet. So we all know about them, but we don't you know, we don't use them on a daily basis. So, I mean, the most obvious ones would be scanning. I mean, scanning has been around for 20 years or more. Depending on how much money you want to spend, you know, we got into the digitization of casts back in the late 90s when we first got into the business. And we were using that one scanner. It was like a surface one scanner. And then the first optical scanners came around. You know, High Willowood had their famous ring and, and a couple of other companies, Biosculptor, had theirs. They were hugely expensive. But in the last five to seven years, the prices of those systems collapsed. So they're a lot more accessible for everyone economically. They can replace the impression phone, but they're still not widely adopted. You know, I'd say we went from 10% of our inflow of work coming uh, digitally through scans to, we're approaching 50% now, but it still means there's another 50% to go. And quite honestly, at this stage, the technology has been tested. The efficiencies are there. It's just a matter of making the change. I would say an overall trend that is emerging and one that we try and push Hersco at the lab here is the environmentally friendly aspect of what we do. We invested in 3D printing. We have two uh, Hewlett-Packard 5210 printers. They're hugely expensive, but you know we have the volume in the lab to support them. But the environmental benefits of those printers is immense. There's a talk that I give, and I'll, I'll give you the punchline that comes with it. 
basically, how many pounds of waste are created per pair of footers on it? So that's a question that I ask. I put it up on a slide. And we go around the room and we get various answers. And so we're, so we're talking about, you know, sheets of foam or, or whatever that end up getting trimmed down to this smaller finished product, right? Because a lot of, a lot of photothetics labs now are doing direct milling. So they're, they're milling from thick blocks of polypro pork or foam. And some of the labs haven't even made that jump. They're still pouring plaster. So if you were making a pair of photothetics from an impression foam and pouring the plaster, between the, the box the impression foam came in, the box of impression foam, the foam itself, and the plaster you pour into it, and then the plastic that you drape over the mold and then trim away, the answer is four pounds. Per pair. That is a waste. Per pair. Holy cow. All right. So you say that's not much, right? Four pounds of waste. But any de- you know, a decent lab is doing 100 pairs a day. That's 400 pounds of waste a day. And five days a week, is 2,000 pounds a week. That is literally a ton of waste. A ton of waste is 2,200 pounds. So that's yeah. how you're doing three or four pairs in your office, you're sending it to a lab. So it doesn't look like much to you, but go look at the dumpster of, of a lab and you'll see several tons of waste per week going out. So scanning gets rid of the impression phone, gets rid of the shipping time and the shipping cost. So it's beneficial economically, but it's the carbon footprint of moving that impression from around the country also uh, disappears when you scan. So I would say between scanning and 3D printing, you can go from four pounds of waste to about 10% of that. The actual weight of a pair of thermoplastic shells is about a quarter of a pound. <laughs> but so, so that's, that's what's produced at the end of the process. So there is a real opportunity for all of us in the profession to collapse the amount of waste that we generate by adopting scanning at some level and using 3D printing at some level. Not everyone's going to do it at the level of a central fab, but there are many, many things we can do. Great point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Seamus, I, we're, we're, the time goes so quickly, but I, I do want to touch on a little bit about what you've done in the Academy's foot and ankle biomechanics and pedorthic program. So being a long time member of the Academy and so active in everything you do from a presenting and, and writing and all of those things, tell me about that program. And, and I know it's something that just keeps getting better and better and evolving a little bit each year. Yeah. We started in 2011, I think. Actually, uh, my fellow Irishman, Kevin Carroll, was the one who tapped me on the shoulder and said, at the time, the board for certification in pedortics was absorbed into ABC. So they then wanted to offer pedortic education at the academy meeting. And I guess they tried a lot of people who said no. And then they finally got to me and I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Working your way up to that Matt Gala. And that was a good first step. <laughs> so... We've been running that program for now 12 years. Our 13th year will be in Chicago. It's just a good forum to bring together speakers from all sorts of backgrounds who have uh, something to share about the foot and ankle. Originally, we were focused on pedortics, but I've tried to broaden it to be foot and ankle biomechanics uh, research. We have DPNs, doctors of podiatric medicine come, uh, PhDs in, in biomechanics, some of the directors of the master's programs. It's just a nice forum to bring some different points of view together. And then I try and moderate it as a question and answer session. 
so that we can have a discussion as we go through the day's talks. I recommend that everyone listening to this podcast should come to our program. And I would also say, well, I'd, I'd say two things. One, we're always looking for new speakers and uh, new ideas. So if you want to participate, reach out, let us know, let the academy know, let me know, come to the program and, ju and just come up to me. Uh, I'm pretty approachable. I think I am anyway. And we'd be glad to consider any ideas. Yeah. And if anybody is interested in this, so this happens each year at the Academy's annual meeting, right? And so we'll be in Chicago with this, uh, this coming up 2024. Right. It's on the Friday of the Academy meeting. Hopefully the weather in Chicago cooperates. I'm sure it will. I always love going to Chicago. It's a great city, but it'll be a good program. I would say it just as a, a note on education in general, I, I happen to enjoy learning, but it's also by putting yourself out there and choosing to write an article or being asked to write an article and saying yes, or make a presentation, whether it's at an academy meeting or just an in-service to your referral sources or the local hospital. I have found that to be a very beneficial way for me to increase my own understanding of what we do. Because once you decide to do it, once you commit to it, you're going to push yourself to know a little bit more about your subject and read around it. So as much and all as you know, I write the articles or make presentations, I find the benefit falls to me directly, as well as anyone else who has to suffer through what I have to say. It's a great way to learn. And I would encourage people to, you know, you might be nervous or shy, um, uh, step up, it'll be just fine. And you will learn more yourself. It's a great point. And, and, you know, I mean, circling back to this concept of, you know, I think most of our field really does view you as a SME or, or a subject matter expert. And I'm going to take a stab and guess that that was not the case until you started diving into this business and then, you know, starting to do the pieces that you author and starting to do all of this presenting. I'm going to guess that that was really sort of what created that level of expertise over the years that you have now. Would that be accurate? Yeah. First of all, I, I, I don't consider myself an expert. I, I'm just someone who's interested in the topic and continuing to, to learn and educate myself. So I, I remain open all the time. I don't have all the answers. I just have a couple of good ideas. That's how I see it. Uh, yes, I would say, well, the first time I wrote was when the OMP Edge magazine first published. And I, the very first copy showed up on my desk. And the first thing I did was I went to the masthead to see if they had a certified podorthist, and they didn't. So I called the editor and said, hey, Mickey, I love your magazine. This is amazing. This is great. You don't have a podorthist. Would you like to have one um, to write the occasional article? And she said, sure. And that was the beginning of, of that kind of track of writing. And then uh, I would just add to that. I was in the profession over 10 years and I attended our local chapter meeting, New York State chapter up in Albany. And they were stuck for a speaker and Joanne Marks, who was on the committee at the time said, could you do an hour on custom shoes? And I said, sure. And I was nervous as the Dickens when I put together a presentation. And all we did was actually, I took the spotlight off myself. We held a clinic on how to cast for custom molded shoes. And I made a practitioner in the room, cast another practitioner in the room. So I didn't even have to do much uh, except critique, which I'm very good at. That got me onto the program. And from there, the door opened. Uh, so I would encourage the younger practitioners who are listening to, sometimes you can be intimidated by, oh, this person owns that space or that person has the lock on something. That's not the case. Put yourself out there just a little bit. Make an effort. You, you'll get asked at a certain point. 
and the door will open. Just keep saying yes, and the door will open. Or, well, you know, you're a very humble guy. And so, you know, subject matter expert or not, I certainly appreciate everything that you do. And I know that there's a lot of people out there. I can't think of another person that is the go-to in that space like you are, in my mind at least. So, so thank you for doing all of that. It's incredibly helpful for all of us collectively. Thank you. You're, you're very gracious. Well, from one uh, suddenly less Irishman to a more pure Irishman, it's been a great time having you on and thank you for joining us. I, I wish we had a, a lot more time, but I, I guess I'll, I'll kind of close with just reminding everybody that, you know, all of these different specialties within our practice have such a great community associated with them. You know, people like Seamus, people like uh, some of the other individuals that have been on the podcast and a great way to get connected with all of those individuals is to connect with the scientific societies that span all of the different realms of, of OMP patient care. So if you have an interest in pedorthics or even just some of the things that, you know, Seamus has kind of brought to our attention today, you know, I would encourage you to reach out to him. He doesn't know it yet, but we'll force him to put all of his information and dinner hours and, and address and all of those things in the, in the show notes so that you can stop by and just say hello. That's great. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been fun. And I have to say thank you to you too. You know, you, you've been a stalwart of the Academy for a long time. You've been overseeing the scientific committees. You even twisted my arm to write of oh, the Academy Society Spotlight article. So in the edge. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you you do a lot for all the societies in the Academy. Well, thank you. Thank you. A couple of great nuggets of information we're gonna include in the show notes. So first of all, the Academy Scientific Society Spotlight and the piece that Seamus wrote was called Every Step You Take, Quality of Life and Life Expectancy. So you can find a link to that in the show notes. And then also more information that will be coming next month about the Academy's annual meeting in 2024 in Chicago and the Foot and Anko Biomechanics and Pedorthics Program. So look to those show notes. We will get more information there. And thanks to all of you for joining us for this episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders. A huge thank you to Seamus. We can't tell you enough how much it's so helpful to have you on, and, and hopefully we get a chance to bring you back very soon. Hope that you'll join us each month as we continue our conversation with key voices in the OMP community, discussing their areas of clinical care and sharing personal experiences as professionals in that specialty. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for OMP professionals, the award-winning OMP Research Insights with Dr. Steve Gard and OMP Rising, a podcast created for emerging professionals in our field. For more information on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists, visit us online at omp.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.